0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Listen, the Shema urges. And this is what I'd like to suggest that we hear, the heartbeat of God. When you hear the heartbeat of God, it brings your love to life. A living love. This is really what worship is all about. It's listening to the grace of Jesus Christ. But it, it, the end of worship doesn't uh, conclude in this space on Sunday. Uh, worship finds its fulfillment the rest of the week in every space as those who heard the heartbeat of God in worship go out and represent that grand affection. Wherever they go. When you hear the heartbeat of God, it will awaken in you love. Moses gives this uh, central and most ancient of all creeds to Israel as they stand before him on the plains of Moab. They're having a worship service. Deuteronomy is three great sermons. That Moses preaches. They're listening. The Hebrew name for the book of Deuteronomy is these are the words. These are the words that Moses spoke. These are the words of God through Moses. Listen. For the heartbeat of God. The first generation, the generation that had gone through the Red Sea, out of slavery in Egypt and moved towards the promised land, had died away. Forty years later, the next generation stands before Moses, and Moses wants them to be sure that they hear, this next generation, every subsequent generation needs to hear afresh God's love for them. And we need that too. So let's listen. Listen. Would you open up your Bible and uh, we'll read this text one more time together. It's uh, found on page 143 of the Pew Bible, but that's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together as his people. This is the Shema. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. And write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. In the 1980s, Mike Wallace gave an interview... To a rising journalist, Bob Costa. It would be broadcast on Bob's show late at night. And as Mike Wallace gives this interview, uh, he's reviewing his storied career in journalism. That was meant to be the focus of the interview. But all of a sudden, to his surprise and Costa's surprise, Wallace throws a curveball. It occurs to him that this is airing in the middle of the night. And when he realizes that, he changes the subject on Costas. He takes advantage of the moment and he confesses for the first time in public that he has struggled with clinical depression. And many of you, many of us have struggled with clinical depression. Those of us who have or have loved ones who have know the amazing uh and inexplicable stigma that associates with that disease and you may keep it to yourself. But Wallace said, you know, this is what he said, he thought to himself, there are probably a lot of people listening at this moment who can't get to sleep because they're depressed. People who need to know that there's hope. Wallace was in the middle had been uh, a few years before this interview in the middle of Uh, lawsuit. CBS News and uh, Mike Wallace were being sued for a documentary that they had done. And the accusations were very personal. Mike Wallace began over time to internalize them. He lost his confidence. He lost his ground uh, upon which he stood. Soon everything started to turn gray as he walked through the streets of New York City. He found himself losing his appetite. He could barely get out of bed. And when he was in bed, he could never sleep. His wife realized the problem and got him to a very skilled caregiver, a psychiatrist who nursed Wallace back to health. But he said, through that time, there was one thing, one thing in particular that held him. And it was the Shema. It was what you just read. This ancient bit of scripture. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. These words, Wallace wrote, he would recite each night, as I had every night since I learned those words, growing up in Brookline, Massachusetts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Again and again, night after night. He was reciting these words that gave hope to Mike Wallace. In a way, he writes later, that's been the key to my still going strong for all these years. Every time I reach out beyond myself, to my family, my friends, to my doctor, to my co-workers, and the public to whom we bring the news, to the whole community of people who battle depressive disorders, and to the one... I have turned to ever since I was a boy in Brookline, I find the hope that has led me out of darkness. Mike Wallace found God's hope in God's love for him. At the center of these three sermons that Moses gives, as he stands there on the plains of Moab, coaching a people who don't remember the great exodus, but who need to know that God loves them because they're about to journey into their own adventure as they cross the Jordan River in just a few weeks into the promised land. Moses' major theme is, and this may surprise you, love. Yes, it's the Old Testament. But Deuteronomy is called by one scholar the gospel of love. Do you know that the word love shows up more times in Deuteronomy than it does in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in the book of Romans, in the New Testament, and 1 Corinthians? And that's got that great love chapter that we all use at our weddings, right? (laughs) Deuteronomy is the gospel of love. This is what Moses is impressing on God's people. This is the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God. With all your soul, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Some people interpret that as sort of three aspects of our personality, three zones. I think it's better not to. I think there's a kind of an outward progression here, actually. The heart is the cognitive center in the Hebrew understanding. It's where we have our sense of self. So It could be the mind or the heart, affective or cognitive. The soul translates the Hebrew word nefesh, which means life. So that which is set deep in your heart, God's love, is to move outward into your life. And then find that your strength, is the Hebrew word here, for muchness. For muchness. The fullness of life. The exceedingly, uh, the, everything that you apply yourself to, everything that flows out of your life, all activity is to be tainted with this great love. Love of God, yes, that's the first great commandment. But Deuteronomy would learn through the teaching of Moses that this love of God always issues forth in love of neighbor. Leviticus 18 would say the same. And by the time of Jesus, it was well known that there are two great commandments. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor in the same way. Love is what God is calling Israel to. In this way, Israel will be the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, that you are blessed, not for yourself, but blessed to be a blessing. And the urging of Isaiah who said, you are a light unto the nations, to Israel. And that's our calling as well. As the church of Jesus Christ, as the people who happen to be gathered in this room, in this hour, our mission is love. So how are we doing? I know I had some things to confess when we did the prayer of confession earlier. Um, I wish my love were more robust. My wife wishes my love would be more robust. My children, my colleagues, my neighbors, all wish there were more love in George. And you know, the stereotype of Christians is not real good right now. Have you ever asked any of your friends, how do you perceive Christians in America? 2007, a study was done, I don't know how accurate it was, it was reported in a book called Unchristian. They just asked people, what do you think of when you hear a Christian? Right? 91% of those adults, these are people outside of the Christian faith, said that they felt that Christians were anti-homosexual, 91%. 87% felt that Christians were judgmental. 85% felt that Christians were hypocritical. felt Christians were too political. 70% thought that Christians were insensitive. We're not doing so well. Ask those same people what they think of when they think of Jesus and what comes to mind. Love. Everybody knows that. Jesus. The stereotype that people have of us today wouldn't apply to Jesus. Jesus kind of breaks the mold. He broke the mold in his own day. You know, in, in his own day, Jesus was constantly misunderstood. Why? He hang around, hung around with the wrong crowd because he loved. He hung around with prostitutes and tax collectors. And he ticked off the religious right of his day. They never understood him. You know, it, it, but G, it's not that Jesus didn't have convictions. He could say to people in power who are misusing their power, you brood of vipers. He could say to people that were lost in sin, stop, go and sin no more. But he was known for his love. Would it be that you and I, that we could be known for our love in exactly the same way that Jesus is? This is exactly what our, our love, our world needs. It's love. It's God's love. That's what we need in our marriages, in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. In every place we read about, when we read the news, it's his love that is needed. I hope that we can be a people who offer hope to a cynical, despairing, oftentimes depressed society around us. That's our mission here. That is our call. That's why Jesus has us here in this room together. But the question is, how does it happen? How can people whose love is rather lackluster, and I'm talking about myself, find the kind of ardor, to which Moses is calling Israel? Well, six words. It's the Shema. His answer to that question is, hear. There are really three parts to what Moses gives us in this Shema. There's the hear, the hearing. And then there's the, I shall love the Lord my God with all my heart. I shall love. But in between those two, there is something in the middle that connects the hearing with the doing that, connects the I hear to I do, I will, I shall love. And it's that missing piece that we need to spend some time understanding. It's that which we need to hear. See, as as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I oftentimes, we go right to the great commandment. And we pass over the Shema as though it were some incidental prologue. Ask your Jewish neighbors if they view it that way. No, no, no. The Shema is where love begins. See, Moses has no idea that it would be possible in any sense to obey the great commandment without first hearing. To hear is critical. So what is it that we're supposed to hear? What is it that's in between the hear and the I shall love? Well, it is this. I am. It's the self-identification of God. And it's, you know, I grant you, it's rather cryptic. There are these two claims. The Lord is our God, I am your God, and then there's the Lord alone, or the Lord is one, as the New International Version translates. Two claims, and you wonder, what does that mean? The Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. Well, to, to understand that, we have to look back to the beginning of Moses' sermon, because Moses is doing what uh, good preachers oftentimes do, which is repeat themselves, and they develop a kind of a refrain that moves through the sermon. And he's developing this refrain, and he has introduced it at the beginning of his sermon, just as I did with mine. I'm learning. Moses begins his sermon in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, where the editor tells us, Moses convened all Israel and said to them, and here's how Moses begins, Hear, O Israel, Shema. Yitzrael, hear, O Israel. And then there's a paragraph there uh, about the hearing and the context of their hearing. And then the Lord begins to speak. And verse 6, we catch the middle part. And I'm going to skip over that for a second. Verse 7, we get the you shall. See the same pieces. Hear, O Israel. Then we get the middle part. And then verse 7, you shall. Actually, 7 and 8 begin a reiteration of the Ten Commandments. Israel received those already in Exodus chapter 20, but here Moses, for the next generation, wants to repeat these commandments, these ten words of God to them. But uh, in between this hearing and this doing, there is this statement, this self-identification of God. And this is where love is kindled. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt Out of the house of slavery. Verse 6. There are two parts to that. I am the Lord your God. That's one claim. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's another claim. I believe these two claims are essentially the same claims that uh, Moses is making in the Shema, just a chapter later. And I think if we were to, if I were to paraphrase that for you, I think this is what it means. The Lord is saying, I have given myself to you and committed to loving you completely. I've given myself to you, and committed to loving you completely. That's God's heart. That's the heartbeat of God, that kindles love. Just to look more carefully at these two claims, the first one is the Lord is our God. Here the Lord says, I am your God. I have given myself to you. I'm your God. I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm your God. And you are the community that is shaped by this profession that the Lord is our God. That's the greatest reality about ourselves. That's who we are. That shapes our life. This The Lord is our God. Our God, the Lord is our God, the Lord is your God, that phrase occurs 242 times in Deuteronomy. That's a major refrain for Moses. That's well over half the instances those phrases are used in the entire Bible. The Lord is your God. And then what about this, the Lord is one thing? Two aspects to that, consistency and sufficiency. The Lord is one. If you had been the children of Israel, the second generation standing on the plains of Moab, you'd heard the Bible stories about the exodus and great miracles and answers to prayer and deliverance from slavery. But come on, that was then and this is now. And in the face of that, Moses says, the Lord is one. The one who was the Lord for them is the Lord for you. How about you? I don't know. I oftentimes think, ah, in the Bible, some amazing thing happens. God does miracles. He hears prayers. He's active. He's showing his love. He's doing wonderful things in the Bible. But my life, should I really expect the same? The Lord is one. He's the same for you that he was for them, Moses impresses. Consistency. And then sufficiency. This is why it's a good translation, as well as to say the Lord is one, to say the Lord alone. The Lord alone is our God. He's absolutely sufficient. You will not need to recall the powers of Egypt. You will not need to learn about the deities of Canaan because you have one God who loves you. And your life is sustained by him, by his love, him alone. That's all you need. Listen. Listen. God loves you. Before we love him or anybody else, God loves you. That's what you have to hear. You have to see his heartbeat. Tony Blair talks about his own spiritual awakening. Uh, He's he's written of it recently. He traces it back to uh, age 10. His father had a severe stroke. His father was only 40 years old. And uh, they rushed him to the hospital and it wasn't at all clear he'd ever returned. His mother was rattled to try to create some semblance of routine. She sends the Blair children to school. The head teacher happens to notice uh, Tony is particularly distressed this morning. And he finds out about his father possibly dying. And this man was a Christian. And he reaches out to Tony in love. And he says, Tony, would you like for us to kneel down and ask God to heal your father? And, and Blair writes this. He said, I knew this was not as straightforward as he thought. And I plucked up the courage to whisper, I'm afraid my father doesn't believe in God. My teacher's reply was to make a lasting impression on me, the prime minister writes. That doesn't matter, the man said. God believes in him. He loves him without demanding or needing love in return, Blair's husband, uh, Blair's father um, recovered, but Blair was never the same after that conversation. God loves you without condition. This is the heartbeat of God. This is what we must hear if we would be people who love unconditionally. And by the way, that's what a covenant means. A covenant is when one person gives themselves to another in unconditional love. And Deuteronomy is a book that's all about the covenant and a renewal of the covenant. Another place that we find covenants both in the Bible and in our lives is in marriage. Marriage is a covenant. And if the Love of God is made clear to the Israelites through this brief little six-word saying. How much more is it revealed to us in Jesus Christ when God comes to love us very personally? To say, I am God. I am love for you. For God so loved the world. And I have come not to make you my servants, but to make you my friends. Jesus says no one has greater love than this than that he lay down his life for his friends. And I call you. My friend, he has come to bind himself to us in covenant love. He has pledged us his truth. One of the great mystics, Catherine of Siena, lives in Italy, where Siena is, so that's why... They, and um, she, when she was a child, used to steal away to a cave. Her parents were putting pressure on her. Why don't you get married She cut her hair because she didn't need a husband. Because she had a divine lover. And from the earliest of days, age seven, and this is the 14th century, she'd run to this Tuscan cave to commune with her lover. She considered herself in a spiritual marriage with Jesus Christ. She listened to God when she beheld the cross. She believed that she was seeing the inmost heart of God for her, Jesus, on a cross. And she believed she heard God speaking to her. And this is what, one of the things he said. When the soul has looked with her mind's eye into my son's open heart, she begins to feel the love of her own heart in his consummate and unspeakable love. Her love is kindled when she looked into the heartbeat of God on the cross. The Bible speaks of a marriage, it's a metaphor, between God, Jesus Christ, and the church. And Martin Luther meditated on that. It's a profound reality, he says. It's a reality in which we see God's grace in powerful ways. Luther writes this, The incomparable grace of faith is this, that it unites the soul to Christ as the wife to the husband. By which mystery, as the apostle teaches, that's Paul, Christ and the soul are made one flesh. Now, if they are one flesh, and if a true marriage, nay, by far the most perfect of all marriages, is accomplished between them, then it follows that all they have becomes theirs in common, as well good things as evil things, so that whatsoever Christ possesses, that the believing soul may take to itself and boast of its own. And whatsoever belongs to the soul... That Christ claims as his. Do you see what he's saying? When a husband and wife get married, everything they own, they own now in common. What belongs to the one becomes the property of the other. And so Luther's saying, do you see what happens? When God marries the church, what belongs to the church, its sin, its judgment, its death, becomes the property of its Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves it. And what belongs to its Savior, Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his affirmation, his life becomes the property of his beloved church. It's ours. It's what it means for God to love us. Knowing that is the power behind our love, whether it be in our homes, or in our church, or in the city, in the world. I was uh, asked by my daughter this uh, last week what I was preaching on this Sunday, and I saw it's about love, and she said, oh, I can help with that. I said, really? She said, yeah, because love is the secret power of Harry Potter. <laughs> and I'm a little behind on my Harry Potter reading. I've read some, but I'm still not through the seventh book. And uh, But she said, yeah. Remember, that when Harry Potter was a boy, he who shall not be named tried to kill him, and what saved him was love. Not Harry Potter's love. Whose love? His mother's love. It was because Harry Potter was beloved that he had power in his life. Because he was beloved, he was able to love the people around him, albeit imperfectly, But it's his capacity to love that drives this narrative forward to a place of great hope. That's your power too. And mine is the power of being so deeply loved. That love just overflows. Love for God. Love for neighbor. Imagine how different our weeks would be if this week, today, we decided this week we would dedicate ourselves to so loving the people around us that they would notice. That they would say to themselves, I'm not sure I've been loved in that way before. That our city would say, I don't know much about those folks at UPC, but I've never seen love like that. Here, oh Seattle, listen It is in seeing and hearing the heart of God and the good news of Jesus Christ that we will have more love than we know what to do with. I don't know who is in your life. I don't know how you'll be loving. Probably as many ways as there are names in this room. But I am not at all uncertain but that God has given you an assignment and me an assignment this week to love. I want to close with a A little uh, excerpt from an interview that Leanne Hansen did with uh, a physician named David Lockster Camp from down east Maine, a country doctor, David Lockster Camp. With a full career, he's seen medicine change over the years. Uh, It used to be very common to make house visits, to go and drop in on patients and to know them and to know their family and to care for them in a holistic way, and it turns out Dr. Locksterkamp still does that, but he recognizes medicine has changed, and yet even when he can't, he has learned to put the relationship uh, between the patient and the physician at the center of his care, patient-centered care, he calls it. And Hanson asked him, because she had interviewed him a decade earlier, uh, to uh, read some of his aphorisms that he has written and collected over the years. And I just want to read some of them to you because they suggest to me something of our mission as we face those who have hurt in our world. Remember, love takes the hurt that belongs to somebody else and makes it ours. And the hope that belongs to us and shares it with them. So Dr. Camp says, that, well these are some of the aphorisms. First of all, health is not a commodity. Aging is not an illness. To fix a problem is easy. To sit with another suffering is hard. Patients cannot see outside their pain. We cannot see in. Relationship is the only bridge between. I like this one. The most common condition we treat is unhappiness. And the second is like unto it. And the greatest obstacle to treating a patient's unhappiness is our own. Hear, O Israel, God loves you. Doctors, he says, expect too much from data and not enough from conversation. Community is a locus of healing, not the hospital or the clinic. And then finally, the foundation of medicine is friendship, conversation, and hope. So what he's talking about as physicians, I think, is our mandate this week as the church. To be the country physicians. To go out and to sit beside those who have hurt and to offer them your ear and the love of Jesus Christ. A living love. When you hear the heartbeat of God, it will awaken you to love. Let's pray. God, sometimes our Our ears are stopped up. Our hearing aids are deficient. Our hearts are too cluttered. So clear it all away. Open us up fresh to the fact that you have loved us completely in Jesus Christ. May we continuously gaze wherever we go, whether we're rising or sleeping... May we fix this affirmation of your love, the good news of Jesus Christ, between our eyes so that it informs everything that we see. May we put it on our wrists so that it's a part of everything that we do. May we put it on our doorposts so that whether we come home or whether we leave home to go out into the world, we know that we're loved and that we have the love of a living God to share. That is our hope and that is our mission. So give us the strength and power of your Holy Spirit that we might do it